Good morning, folks, and welcome to day two of the Wearable Technology and Augmented Reality Show 2015. It's been a busy 24 hours, and we're back for another helping of all things wearable and augmented. Uh, it's currently about 8.50 a.m., and I don't know about you, but I'm on my first cup of coffee of the day, feeling not too shabby for someone low on sleep and high on adrenaline. And uh, talking about feelings is particularly apt this morning, because I'm fortunate to be joined by someone from the Emotions Company, that company being Sensum. Uh, and that's someone being Gowan Morrison, the CEO and co-founder. Uh, good morning, Gowan. Thank you so much for joining me uh, for an early morning chat. How are you feeling this morning, sir? Fairly lively, considering. All good. I'd like to start, Gowan, if, if I could, by asking the obvious question, and this is one of the questions that everybody will ask you. Please could you give the listeners a brief introduction to yourself, to the company and to the work that you do at Sensum? Yeah, of course. So I'm Gowan Morrison. I'm CEO and co-founder, as you've already stated, uh, of Sensum. And uh, Sensum is a software platform for consolidating data from wearable tech. And then we contextualize that with audio, video, geolocation. And it gives, when you look at it from a market research point of view, it gives you a full 360 view of how a person is feeling, what they're looking at, what they're engaging with. And from uh, an interactive events side of things, and it gives you a completely hyper-personal experiences so that you can develop emotional and biometric feedback for events and uh, cool things. It sounds fascinating. I mean, you just described Sensum as a software platform and uh, talked about how it measures emotional response. You've also used the phrase hyper-personalized on a couple of occasions when I've heard you speak. You're talking about providing insights into audience engagement. And I know that you're an advocate for a deeply useful role for biometric data, basically in, uh, aiding our ability to understand ourselves and the states and feelings that we inhabit. And the first thing that strikes me is how vast and diverse the area of biometric measurement is. Now, recently you worked with a guy called Sam Crossman, mm-hmm. who was a volcano diver descending into a live volcano, pretty crazy. And you overlaid the biometric data that he was uh, generating uh, via a GoPro. Yep and he was able to capture footage and then basically add to the uh, emotional experience. I'm interested in, firstly, how did that project come about and what lessons were you able to draw from such an intense kind of experience? Yeah, so uh, we have strategic partners called Wearable World. Uh, We went through an accelerator with them back in San Francisco in September last year. And they had met Sam and he was looking at some sort of solutions to be able to take with on his latest expedition and we got introduced, could talk and we thought it was incredible and said yep we're in, we'll have a, we'll have a go at that Sam, you're a nut job but yep we're there and uh, it was fantastic, he really he embraced it, he learnt it very quickly, not that it's a complex thing but we discussed what were the best scenarios because there he was. Well, he was basically going to climb down, properly rock climb down inside a volcano, uh, put his suit on and then go and stand at the edge of this incredible crater that is alive and bubbling. And uh, if you look at the footage, it is rather humbling at the sheer scale of it. It's incredible. It is nuts. We were... We were worried. Uh, we, didn't, we, we, didn't, we didn't want to... Uh, cause him to have any problems through this it was tough enough Uh, the actual advice he was getting from the people that were uh, mapping out what he should be doing were saying you probably shouldn't be wearing these sensors you've got enough to concentrate on Uh, and he was adamant that he wanted to do it because it was going to add something an extra layer of insight to something to a place that uh, fewer people have walked on than on the moon and um, all credit to him he did it and it was it was extraordinary because 
the things we were worried about were the sheer heat he was going to experience. Could the sensors handle it? Nobody even knew uh, where we were going to get this variability. Where where was a baseline likely to be? Where we're already going to hit 100% and everything? Was it just going to be dripping <laughs> inside his suit? <laughs> and uh, everything worked absolutely perfectly. It was it was it was great. The issues that we had to overcome were things like. What do you do with comms when you're looking at this kind of thing? Well, at yeah. least it was just pairing to a device. It's all Bluetooth comms. So you can do local capture and then retrospective upload, but you have to hope that it's all recording because you've got no means of double-checking it. Uh, there's all there's all sorts of parts to that that we weren't really sure of, but it taught us a lot in terms of extreme circumstances. Things we'd probably look at doing is, if we were looking at skin conductance, we'd try and measure it somewhere other than the hand next time, obviously. But uh, we still got really solid data. In some places it was noisy, as you would expect. Yeah, uh, I'd be happy to work with him again and go and see where else we can, we can do this kind of thing. He's a pretty extreme fella uh, to do that. That takes a very specific type of personality to descend into a live volcano. I mean, metaphorically, yeah. Uh, literally, I'm not so sure. <laughs> um, Gowan, I know you've used the phrase uh, the physiology age. Mm. Uh, I heard you use that. Uh, that struck me as a very interesting uh, coupling of two words um, to describe the biometric era, if you will, that we're entering. You're involved in sort of pushing forward ways in which brands can gain much deeper insights into consumers, uh, into their feelings and their behaviours. How do you see this kind of commercial biometric measurement being beneficial and in what ways might it improve what brands are able to do for us and what they can create for us? Generally, the acceptance of, of language is going about the place in all sorts of advertising, marketing, brand, uh, literature um, and media is largely about emotions and behaviours. It is a, a, an understanding and awareness now that emotions and behaviours are driving a large proportion of our purchase habits, our decision making. But that's not just for... It's not just for product, it's not just for retail. I mean, it's across the board. We're emotional beings. It's every single part of us. Uh, the industries outside of health and fitness that have grasped this space faster than most are the retailers and the, the large FMCG brands. Um, they're obviously, oh sorry, and, and, and drinks as well. They, they're obviously looking at shifting volume units. They're interested in a different relationship um, with social, what it's allowed them to do is communicate, understand better their audiences and see real-time response to stuff. And they have generally been able to back up the likes of Dr. Daniel Kahneman's theories on emotion and emotions research. Now, there's a system one, system two, conscious and unconscious. Uh, school of thought going on in your body, in your mind. So really, they're looking to be able to find things that can tap into these. And that's where we come in this is what we're able to provide and I'm sure others will as well um, where you're able to take uh, so a, a stimulus comes in whatever that is generating a physical response which is an emotional driver uh, it's causing these responses and uh, any number of biometrics can be recorded from that uh, from facial coding to skin conductance to heart rate to blood pressure to, to breathing to voice and all of these can be measured and there are different circumstances that are useful and uh, we just offer up a consultancy side of things where we say, well, this is what we can do, this is what you should do, and do you want them to feel like the Borg, or do you want them to feel fairly casual and in situ? And it's the first time that we've been able to take this kind of research outside of the lab and into the real-world environment.
What sort of response have you been getting from the brands uh, to, to what you're doing? Because what occurs to me about the kind of tech that you're offering is it, it basically eliminates a certain kind of social masking uh, that goes on where psychologically as beings we're, we're often, we often tend to give responses that we think are acceptable or we give responses based on something other than how we actually are feeling about it and there are a number of reasons for that I would assume that because you're measuring unconscious responses as well as conscious responses there's some occasionally some disparity between what people say uh, in market research and what they are actually feeling is that the case yeah absolutely I mean there, there are several different strands to that I mean there's are there's arguments to say that uh, your social being is not your real being you know you're the gay unicorn dancing about the internet uh, rather than the bloke is walking down the street you know it just um, so there's there's a disparity in the first instance uh, if you're in a market research uh, focus group you're possibly going to go with the strongest voice in the room or you exactly what you said you're going to go with something that is oh uh, well they're asking me to, they're paying me to come and have a comment about this drink so I better speak highly of it uh, and that's me take my 50 quid and I'm away again um, so there, there's, there's those things you gotta you gotta bear in mind and you're right the unconscious layer does provide an insight into this it's a different it's a different world and disparity is actually just as inter interesting as uh, the, the coming together of both of those uh, conscious and unconscious streams because then you can start to really get a, an understanding of what the lie is. What, what do you think is pushing the buttons for them to go that way? And statistically, when you start to look at the responses, you can start to think, okay, I get it. I get why you're doing that. You don't want to be seen to be a, a, a fast car lover when actually you're, you're projecting a tree hugger image. You know, it's, it, those are the things you can start to see and maybe you just appreciate good engineering. It's okay to say it. My next question would be uh, basically related to the intersection between measurement and analysis. I mean, there's a kind of unique feedback cycle happening that's allowing both the measured and the measurer to gain access to data. There's also, there are also obviously potentially ethical and legal issues about what's happening between those two parties. I'm interested in, in getting your take on how you see better experiences being managed through that relationship. Mm -hmm. Tricky, to be brutally honest with you. The way we, we, we talk to all clients and to people who are taking part in this, mostly because it's under the banner of market research, is you're entering into a contract of passing over opinion anyway. These are always anonymized, so the data is statistically relevant to a demographic. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, the wearable technology show is now open. So in case you didn't believe we were here, folks. <laughs> <laughs> Live. Um, so yeah, I mean the, the, the contract is in place. It is a, a transaction between an individual being paid to provide information and the market researcher on behalf of the brand or the brand insights team. So those things are already there. Uh, what the, the, it's more about being transparent about what exactly this is doing. What are we? What are we actually measuring? What does it mean? And uh, we uh, recommend to clients that they provide some feedback to the individuals. It's not just a take it and run. It's a, okay, so this is what we're doing. This is what's going to come out the other side of it. And uh, this is what we'll all collectively learn from it because it's a new space. Yeah. That expands massively when you get into wearable technology going mass scale because there's a point that we'll reach where actually a market research company potentially uh, won't be necessary for the, the, the testing side of it will still be required to do the analysis to assist in understanding and interpret data 
to be able to bring their substantial knowledge to the table on it, to be able to analyse and provide insights to it. But the capturing side of it will now go scale. You know, we've already seen it with uh, webcam and online surveys, mobile surveys. When you introduce the wearable technology, all that does is open it up to mass scale. But there's where we then need the, the, the ethical frameworks in place, the, the legislative side of this, which allows people to feel comfortable in passing over that data safely, and then how it's used to be passed back safely. And that contract needs to be in existence on a global scale. That to me is part of the, the crux of where this is going uh, because you're looking at, as you say, a contract between consumers and providers of goods and services and, and media. What occurs to me is advertisers already know a lot about us because uh, they spend a lot of time testing. Obviously, in the future, they will know a lot more. They will know things that we don't know about ourselves. There's obviously a lot of power to influence in that. Uh, and a lot of power to engage. Uh, you, you can't just see it one way. I mean, I, I am interested though, what dangers do you see in allowing that level of commercial insight into our behavior and what steps do we need to take in order to ensure that this develops in a way which is beneficial for all parties? It's interesting, I take what's happening with social as actually a very good map to, to see how this is moving forward. Brands are terrified of a single bad tweet. And they will jump on it and they'll respond to it and they'll send a, a, a free case of whatever to the person to say, I'm very sorry about that, I hope you don't have a problem with that again, if there's a problem. So there's huge paranoia, but also a framework that's already been put into place by companies that genuinely want to get better. They want, they obviously want to sell more. So they're going to look after their customer base better. It's not just going to be lose them and disappear because they can be got to, they can be found, they can all of this, this, this framework is being put in place. So I think actually in talking to them, they're all super aware of this issue. They don't want to get it wrong. They don't want to offend their, their customer base and they would like to take small steps into it. So I don't think I think those that are pushing the boundaries in this space and that are embracing it are doing it very much in the research space. They're saying, hey, this is, this is R&D. You know, we'll do a pilot and we'll trial it and we'll see where it goes and do it in very small, low-key, doing small publication pieces in industry press. They say, hey, we're doing this. But it's not common knowledge. I mean, I was talking to guys uh, recently um, about the whole debacle and the press noise around the, the Tesco's thing using facial coding on the forecourts. But actually, that wasn't really facial coding. What it was was just checking whether you're a bloke or a lady and uh, a rough age, and then maybe you'll have some advertising sent at you. I mean, I, I agree very much with what you're saying. I think concerns are overblown because it's new, and also because potential benefits are not yet in the mass market, so to speak. What occurs to me, and this is kind of off the top of my head, just appraising uh, you know, as a consumer what, what you guys are doing, is uh, it's not just experiential marketing, it's experiential entertainment, it's tailoring experiences based on the feedback that you derived. I mean, even producing a series, uh, a season of a television show, if you're getting real-time feedback, you know, uh, via some sort of social network that's, co that's connected to your program, 
your ability to tailor what happens uh, to, to match the audience's unconscious sort of feelings and expectations, your ability to look at narrative pacing, to look at the, the individual beats of a drama, you know, to look at elements of emotional response that create really high levels of engagement and also potentially even alter the kinds of stories that you tell. That's just one example that occurs to me. I mean, I heard you mention music. I know you've done work with uh, uh, graphing sort of like emotional responses to music. And you're at a very early stage of this technology. So ultimately, the kinds of experiences that might be possible, it seems to me, are experiences that we've not even thought about yet. Could you speak to that? Yeah, absolutely. So there's a guy called Peter Molyneux, uh, head creative uh, for the Fable game series. And, and he did a speech when we were, the year we were doing our uh, emotional response horror film. He was doing a talk on uh, at South by Southwest, the, uh, the new Fable series, and that they'd written an emotions engine. And it was all about, as the characters were walking down a dark street, that they'd get more and more scared. And uh, that there was moral and ethical decisions that were built into the game, so that if you saw a kid crying and you went and helped that kid, it gave you moral points, but within the gameplay. So you could be trusted as a character potentially, and all of that was fascinating because there was a lot of work, and it would have been a fantastic amount of work to have that size of game, have this kind of thing threaded through as as, as an architecture. And, and I was sitting listening, just thinking, imagine if you were able to close that biofeedback loop. Imagine you were able to actually really have this, and as you get more and more into it, the, your heart is driving decision making and all the rest of that. I mean, we even looked at it when we were doing the horror film. We were looking at maybe even having earbuds in into the film. So as you're sitting in the middle of the audience and the character's walking down that dark alleyway and it's getting scarier and scarier and scarier, that your heartbeat's the one recognising the whole of the room is going off the scale. Yours is really pushing it. Um, but you're the only one in the room that actually hears, don't look behind you, you know? And you, uh, Personalised, uh, yeah. Absolutely personalised experience, but in a group environment, within a cinema context, that has uh, given you this, oh, my God, that's amazing. These are all things that you can do right this moment that we were we were experimenting with and playing with, but we didn't actually get to go forward with. But that's just in a, a small pockets of entertainment. We've we've conceptualised things for game shows where uh, we've pitched them and it was just they just didn't want to go there. But you could have it where there's characters in the game show or people in the game show that are having one set of stuff where you've got big control over the the, the, the the space so you can have quite a lot of sensors on them to an audience as a much lighter touch but different sensors on them to at home engaging through uh, webcams or social and you can have all these tiers of different types of emotional engagement through all these steps and that can be based around ch uh, consumer choice as well exactly With, I mean so how much how much engagement do you do, do you want you know how much participation do you want I know um uh, when you were talking about games, I started thinking about the sort of stuff that Telltale have done. Uh, uh, they've done a couple of series. Like, uh, have you seen the Walking Dead sort of series that they've done on, on mobile? Very manipulative. It's using a small child. And brutally kind of manipulating your emotions based around the journey of this child. But, um, but that strikes me as a kind of like a first foray into really playing with narrative choice and playing with emotional consequence and the audience's expectations and what we bring as people to the game our unconscious if you will mm -hmm. the, the way that we lead ourselves to make choices based on our own moral framework or you know oh I'm going to do that I'm going to kill that person yeah. I'm not going to kill that person yeah. you know and the kind of engines that you're looking at definitely things that, that could augment and enhance those types of experiences I can see that and there's, there's an enormous amount that could be done there 
Gallen, my final question is uh, really based around the, the future. I'd like to get a sense of what you think the future of wearable biometric sensing looks like. Where's this technology going to take us and uh, what changes do you see it bring? Ooh, the old futures question. <laughs> it's a killer. <laughs> Commit yourself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, step up, step up. Um, well, inevitably, it's going to get uh, closer to the skin, it's going to get more invisible. It's the, it's the stuff that you see everywhere being talked about anyway. It will inevitably go that way because at the moment, the major problem is it isn't touching the skin long enough, often enough, or continuously in the forms that we've got on a large scale, unless you're at the sort of professional end of uh, medical or high sports uh, data capture. So from a commercial point of view, they're just not there. But they will get better, uh, and they'll get smaller, and they'll get more hidden, and they'll be swallowable, or they'll be wearable, or they'll be contact lenses, or they'll be earbuds in your sports, or whatever those things happen to be. Um, They'll just get more suited to the things that we already wear and use day in day out as to what we do with them i don't think anybody actually knows because <clears throat> this and i genuinely that's a it's a bit of a cop out i do I, I get that i get that but i was in a panel yesterday on on health and there was a, a, the same question was asked and they said oh well by 2025 we'll probably be in a place where there's a bit more acceptance and, but there will have been a lot of trial and error, but there will be a small increment movement. Now I think of everything from sort of high-end sports and medical being right at the far left, where it's high granularity of data required because somebody's making a life or death decision or you're looking for that final 0.001% that's going to get you the Olympic gold, whatever. So it's high, high granularity of data and it's complex data and it's all sorts. Through to, I'm sitting playing Halo, Halo. I don't need anything other than roughly, it could be an algorithm filling in the blanks when it doesn't, when it jumps off the skin and coming back. So you've got this full spread of confidence levels in that, that I think this is where the wearable sector is going. Because the iWatch is touting itself as being the premium, whereas you've got other watches that are out, that have been out for a good while, that probably won't do much different. But there's an expectation in it, then there's a confidence level in the data. and So there, I think, the markets will drive their own um, explosions in demand. <clears throat> and uh, we'll come back around to ergonomics and aesthetics. What's the nicest looking one and what's the cheapest one? You touched on something very briefly there. You kind of skimmed over it, which, uh, which sparked a thought in my head. Uh, I mean, we've talked quite a lot about the work you're doing with brands, with consumers, uh, uh, what consumers' expectations of biometrics might be and the kinds of experiences that might be possible. Uh, But you did just briefly skim through something that sparked a thought in my head, which was uh, how professionals, particular kind of environments, could come to rely on uh, this information to guide their own responses, uh, to guide and measure their own performance. Uh, You know, there are jobs where performance and state and it's crucial. I mean, you know, the first thing that popped into my head was like, well, how useful would this be to a surgeon, for example, who works in an exceptionally high stress environment to know where those peak moments are, what kinds of states produce that, what kind of physiological states bring about that peak performance. If, you, if you're measuring that over a large organization, over time, it might be possible to see uh, where and when uh, certain, mis- certain mistakes are made mm. because physiologically people are tired, uh, at what level that stress, those stress patterns happen and emerge. And that, you know, that's just a, a tiny sort of example that popped into my head. So, I mean, I think the work you're doing is fascinating. I mean, it's potentially uh, very important as well. 
uh, because we're doing new things with data at this point and uh, you know, we're commoditizing the human body and that's kind of frightening in its own way as well as potentially very liberating. But, um, but it's also an, you know, an exceptionally interesting area. Gowan, uh, it's been a fascinating wake-up call this morning chatting to you. My eyes are barely open. I haven't consumed all my coffee, but I've really enjoyed listening to you. Uh, as I said, I think the work you're doing is likely to grow in importance uh, as we progress further into this new age of wearable computing. And I'll watch what you do in the future with a great deal of interest. Thanks for taking time out of your schedule to talk to me today. No, it was a pleasure, John. Thanks very much. Thank you so much.